Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin our study of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount today by looking at the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we thank You for this moment, this holiday, to, to just celebrate the thing that is most important to us, the thing that we cherish the most. This moment in time where this, this miracle actually happened. A miracle that we based all of our life on now and all of our eternity and the future upon. But we find abundant life here by believing in the resurrection. And we know that we're going to find eternal life in the hereafter in heaven through the resurrection. And so Lord, we're here to, to simply praise You. Lord, as we dive into Your Word, we, we're here professing that we understand that You speak to us primarily through Your Word. This is not just a book. There's something divine behind it. You claim that it's God-breathed coming out from inside of You. And so Lord, we ask for Your Spirit to come and give us eyes to see this passage in a fresh way. Help us to be convicted of sin if we're struggling with something. Give us encouragement where we need it. Give us faith where we lack. So Spirit, come and do your unique work in these next moments together. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but we would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, are you happy? And, and how do people even become happy? Like we live in this unique age, this information age, where there's so many competing claims that we have to filter through. What is true? Should we go this way? Should we go that way? And, and that impacts our understanding of how to be happy, right? Charles had everything uh, the world said that you needed to have in order to be happy. He was born into a wealthy, prestigious British family. They sent him to the, the best private school in the country. He, he went to arguably the most uh, prestigious university in the world. He was handsome. He was athletic. He was on his country's cricket team. And in fact, that led to kind of fame, even international fame. He was known all around the world as a great athlete. Uh, he became famous. And, and also, he was really smart. And as he finished up his time in university, all, the, all these options opened up for him. It was like the world was opening up for him. But in addition to all those things, Charles was a, a Christian and not one of those kind of shallow Christians. He wasn't like one of those tipping Christians, right? He, he was a convictional Christian. He let the gospel just touch every aspect of his life. And so even though he had all these things, good looks, fame, popularity, wealth, accomplishments, he knew that none of that ultimately would lead to his happiness. He knew that happiness was found in going hard after Jesus. And so in this moment where he could have gone any direction that he wanted to go, he went to the mission field. Initially, he was part of a group that went to China. And then he pastored a church in India. And ultimately, he landed in Africa and, and started a ministry there. Charles said that, I know that cricket would not last. The honor would, would not last. And nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world that is to come. Charles found the secret of happiness. Maybe God's calling you to overseas missions. Maybe He isn't. But are you happy? And further, how do we become happy? 
This is really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And as we begin this study today on the Sermon on the Mount, it's, uh, this is probably by any measurable standard the greatest sermon ever preached by certainly and clearly the greatest preacher that ever preached. So this is an immensely important uh, passage to study. This is most likely a sermon that Jesus preached over and over again throughout the region of the Sea of Galilee. And and we're going to spend five weeks looking at this sermon. And we're going to begin today by looking at the Beatitudes, these opening 12 verses. And and Beatitudes, it just simply comes from a Latin phrase that means blessed are. And and blessing really is, is the key to understanding this passage. This is really the main idea. And so just let me give you a couple of points of context before we dive into Matthew 5. And the first has to do with that term blessing. Blessing just means holistic happiness. And sometimes it may be in the version uh, that you're reading of the Bible, it actually says happy are instead of blessed are. And I I think that's a fine way to translate it. But typically, maybe the argument against that is, is our understanding of happiness is typically maybe too psychologized and maybe too shallow and not robust enough to really get what this word is about. He's really getting to what maybe you could say is a holistic happiness, a type of happiness that touches every aspect of your life. It's not about silly giggles. It's something deeper than this. Second, Jesus is going to speak about blessing or happiness as it relates to the kingdom of God. And if you want to summarize thematically what Jesus was always talking about, he talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. If if you read the gospel, the kingdom of God was always on his lips. And the kingdom of God simply means the rule of God. So think king and kingdom. It's this place where the king, his rules are carried out. His laws and his ways, it functions the way that he wants it to function. That's the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have to make chase this rabbit too far to understand that this is not the kingdom of God. Like the kingdom of God has not yet happened, right? Like, like there's all sorts of things around us that are not functioning in the way that God wants them to function. So there's an aspect of the kingdom of God that is not yet here. However, when Jesus comes, he begins ushering in the kingdom of God. So there is in some sense that the kingdom of God is already here. Theologians call this the already not yet principle of the kingdom of God. In some sense, it's already here. In some sense, it's not yet here. So we get taste or we get glimpses of the kingdom of God here. But but the feast is not fully realized until Jesus returns. But, But third, before we dive into our text, that already not yet talk, really gets to the, to the heart of what the Sermon of the Mount is all about. You see, the kingdom is not fully here, but it's sort of here and being ushered in here. And that teaches us how we're supposed to live now. We're supposed to be citizens of a kingdom that is not yet here. So even though it's not fully here, we live in a different kingdom. We're actually supposed to live as citizens for that kingdom. We're not supposed to live according to the rules of the world. We're supposed to live according to the rules of that world. And in fact, what Jesus is going to say is when you live that way as a citizen of the kingdom that is to come, it's there that you're going to find happiness. It's there that you're going to find fulfillment. So some people have said the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a a pocket guide to living a happy life. But the secret is, is living towards the kingdom that is to come and not according to this world. Let's dive into these first couple of verses. And I want you to see that blessing comes at Jesus' feet. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went, up, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Let's stop there for a moment. The, the focus of these opening verses is the disciples. 
The Beatitudes, you could say, are uh, for the disciples about discipleship. Now, certainly this message is what's kind of for everybody, for the crowds that gathered around. And again, I think what Jesus does is he preaches the same sermon or a similar sermon in all these little villages all around the Sea of Galilee. But ultimately what he's getting at here is this is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. A follower of Christ does this. This is what it looks like to follow Christ, to, to live this way. So this is for disciples about discipleship. And discipleship is all about following Jesus. It's still that way. It was, it was that way for the disciples in the first century, and it's the same principle today for followers of Christ. To be a disciple means that you follow Christ. But notice that discipleship begins at sitting at Jesus' feet. This whole thing begins with Jesus rounding up the disciples, sit down and let me teach you. That, that principle still holds today that discipleship begins by sitting at Jesus' feet. See, discipleship is a relationship. It's not just something that you do. It's something that you are, but it, it's something where you're connected to someone else. Discipleship is about or begins with being com, uh, communing with Christ. He's the one that empowers you to do this. He's the one that gives you the vision for, to do this. So by communing with Christ, you're actually able then to follow him. Therefore, the blessed holistic, happy life, it begins by sitting at Jesus' feet. Okay, let's now get to the eight teachings of the Beatitudes. Jesus' eight teachings on how to have a happy life. The first one in verse 3 is, is, Happy are the humble because they gain the kingdom. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, this first Beatitude, this first blessed are, it begins by talking about humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So those who are contrite, those who are poor in spirit, they're the ones who are going to find happiness. The humble people are the happy people, and they gain something. They gain the kingdom of God. Now, now this is paradoxical, right? This is countercultural. Because all of our flesh, our flesh cries out for things like respect and esteem and popularity. And even the world around us, it tells us that, listen, we need to make other people bow to our will. That's when we'll be happy. But Jesus is saying something that's very contradictory to this. He says, listen, the humble people, those are the happy people. So happiness begins with humility towards God. So it's a vertical relationship first. So he's talking about poor in spirit as it relates to God. So the happy people are the ones who are humble before God. So those people who are, are so self-reliant that they don't need anything from God. They've got it all together. They've got it all figured out. They don't need God. Or the people who are so arrogant that they want to put God in their box where they're being transformed by God. They want to transform God into their image. That's, that's the hallmark of spiritual pride. But it's the humble people who say, listen, I have a need. I'm a sinner. I'm falling short. Those are the people that find happiness. But, but this poor in spirit, it spreads out to other relationships. It's about how we relate to one another. So the ones who are humble towards one another, those are the ones who experience happiness. Further, this, the blessings of the kingdom, they're, they're not given to those who are spiritually arrogant or, or they're so self-confident that they don't need anything from God. But they're the, they're the humble ones who trust God, even when it doesn't make sense. They're the ones that, that put other people before themselves. Those are the ones who find happiness. Friends, are you poor in spirit? Are you humble in heart? Do you receive what God says as good and true? Or do you try to change it to fit your definition of what is good and true? Again, I know this is a paradox. 
This is countercultural. This goes against everything that the world says on how to find happiness. But what Jesus is saying is if you live this way, you'll gain the kingdom. The second one is, is happy are the sad because they gain comfort. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think this is the weirdest of the Beatitudes. Wait a second. What do you mean the sad ones are the happy ones? Like, what in the world is he talking about here? This seems to be so flipped on its head that mourning is a specific type of sadness. You see, mourning is grief that we experience over either personal sin or personal loss. And there's actually a goodness about mourning, right? Like, it's good to be sad about your sin. When we mourn our sin, it enables us to be right with God. And when we mourn our loss, it's evidence of the fact that we have loved the one that we have lost. So those who are mourning, there's actually a real virtue to that. Like, like think about people who never mourn their sin or, or never mourn someone who is who, who has passed away. Like, like they're narcissists, right? <laughs> like, like people who live that way, who like never think they do anything wrong, they never mourn their sin. Like those are the type of people that like, listen, you're not going to be able to maintain a friendship if you live that way. You're not going to be able to maintain a marriage that way or maintain a relationship with parents or siblings or children if you live that way. It's the people who recognize their failings and try to change. It's the people who, who love people enough to weep at a funeral. If you're the type of person that never weeps at a funeral, maybe it's because you, you've never lived. But the promise here is for those who have mourned, God will comfort you in those moments. You see, the narcissist said in the middle of the night, he's lonely. He doesn't have anything he doesn't have any relationship. He doesn't have anyone there with him. But the ones who mourn, the ones who have loved, the ones who have been transparent about their failings, God promises to care for them, to comfort them, to be their refuge for them. Do you love God enough to mourn your sin? Or do you love your sin more than Him? Have you loved people enough to mourn them when they pass? Or do you love yourself too much to love others? Again, I know this is a paradox. But the paradox is, is if you live a life where you hate your sin and, and you hate death, it actually leads to mourning, but the type of mourning that is comforted and you'll find happiness there. The third of the eight is happy are the gentle because they gain an inheritance. Verse five says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is an also kind of an odd teaching, right? The, the meek are the ones that inherit the earth. The meek are the ones who, who don't climb the ladder of success. Like meek, meek people, they don't gain the world and all that it has to offer. Meek people get run over by the world, right? Like that's how this world works. Meekness, in a sense, it is, it, it's not about being this kind of passive wallflower, but, but, but it's about being gentle or about being non-aggressive. It's patiently waiting on the Lord. And happy are the gentle because they gain an inheritance. This one's particularly convicting to me. I, I'm not a very meek person. I can kind of be a bear. I, can, I, I never find that right balance where I'm either too aggressive or not aggressive enough. And so then I feel convicted. Well, I need to say something. And then I just like vomit on somebody and it goes too far. And I just, I, I can be a jerk is what I'm trying to say. Uh, listen, for some of you, this illustration doesn't work, but maybe some of you does. does. I, um, I, I struggle with being either not assertive enough or, or too assertive and striking that right balance. And and recently, my, my daughter and I went to a concert, and, and my daughter's like five foot four, okay? And so, 
you know, we do the standing room only thing. She can't see anything. So we're moving around and, and one of the workers there, she kept moving us and my daughter couldn't see anything. And I'm, and I'm calculating how much I spent on the tickets and I came down here. And my point is I'm getting madder and madder and madder as this lady keeps moving us. And it's just all I can do to bite my tongue. And I literally, I mean, this was like a God moment for me, okay? For most of you, you're like, I don't get this illustration. For me, this is a big moment. I, I bit my tongue. I didn't say what I wanted to say. So this lady come and asked us to move. I didn't say what I wanted to say, okay, okay. And by God's grace, a few minutes later, she accidentally bumped into me, this lady did. And she bumped into me, apologized quickly. I said, hey, it's not a big deal. And all of a sudden she goes, hey, thank you for not being rude to me. And thank you for not cussing at me. And I thought, this poor woman, people are cussing at her for making her move. And I said, hey, you're just doing your job. Thank you for doing your job. And, and we got talking. In the end, she shook my hand and she took my five foot four daughter and moved her to like the very best spot so she could see the, the whole concert. And, and again, you might be thinking this is the dumbest illustration, okay? But if you know me well, man, there were so many things I wanted to say that I didn't say. And it was this little moment where, where the Spirit stepped in and, and he just pulled back my tongue for just a second, and then, he, and then he blessed us in this one little moment. Listen, I can be a bear. I can be a jerk. And, and if you're like me, if you struggle with being too aggressive at times, hear his words here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Are, are you too aggressive? In what area of your life do you need to quietly, patiently, simply just wait on the Lord? He's promised an inheritance to the non-aggressive, to the meek. Maybe you won't gain as much in this world, but you'll gain everything in the world to come. Number four, happy are the seekers of godliness because they gain fulfillment. Verse six says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Verse six is about those who earnestly desire greater godliness. Like happiness. Happiness is for those who seek godliness who seek righteousness they don't yearn for wickedness they yearn for what is good and for what is right and what is holy what is godlike listen many settle for kind of a nominal christianity they, they don't yearn for more things of god they don't yearn to be like god i'm here to tell you shallowness is not satisfying he's saying go deep with me yearn for godliness and you will be satisfied what do you yearn for what, what are your hunger pains for is it the promotion? Is it the new experience? Or is it to be more like God? We just finished this series on, on the book of Ruth. And we looked at Ruth and Boaz, these, these prototypical righteous people. They did these glorious, righteous things on the outside. That was connected to these hearts. These hearts that, that, wanted, that were motivated to faithfully follow the Lord. They connected the inside and the outside. And that's what's going on here. Those who from the inside desire godliness, they will be satisfied. Jesus promises that you'll find fulfillment, that you'll find satisfaction, that you'll find deep happiness as you pursue Him. The next one, number five, is happy are the, the givers of grace because they will gain grace. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is, is all about giving grace when justice is deserved. Mercy is all about being generous when you want to be stingy. Mercy is all about forgiving when you want to hold that debt against somebody. Mercy is all about working for healing when you just want to avoid the problem. P people are happy when they give mercy. Like, like giving mercy, think forgiving someone. Not only is it like ethically virtuous, like it's the right thing to do, 
But, but that's where happiness is found. Like, like um, stingy people, uh, people who hold grudges, unforgiving people, people who don't care about others, those aren't the joyful people, right? Like the generous people, those are the joyful people. Further, those who are merciful in this life, they're going to receive God's mercy in the next. Heaven's not for the perfect. Heaven's for those who have received God's mercy. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Mercy's not the rule of this world, right? But it's going to, it's going to mark the kingdom that is to come. Everyone in the coming kingdom is there because of mercy. Therefore, in this world, we're to live according to the next. Are, are you a gracious person? Are, are you a quick-to-forgive person? Maybe a better question to ask is, does your spouse think that you're a gracious person? What about your kids or your friends or your parents or your siblings? Again, this is a paradox, but he's calling us. He's saying that, listen, it, it, you will find happiness by giving people not what they deserve, but by giving them grace. Number six, happy are the guiltless because they will gain God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity is about being guiltless. It's, it's about the innocent. It's about those who have not experienced evil. It's about purity is, is about those who are unstained by sin. In the Old Testament, all sorts of things could, could be pure, and there were all, all these laws, these, all these rules that were people were supposed to follow. And we know from Jesus' ministry and the Pharisees that some people followed those rules on the outside, but on the inside, they were not doing them from the right motivation, so they were unpure. Jesus is constantly cutting to the heart, right? Listen, he, He's not just concerned about you not murdering. And just to be clear, He is concerned about that. But He's really concerned about your heart. He's concerned about you not hating someone. He goes to the heart over and over again. And that's what He's talking about, about purity. You see, He cares about your soul. And listen, we live in a day that our culture devalues the soul, right? Like, like our culture compartmentalizes personhood. So we can say, yeah, well, I did something with my physical self, but that's not really my true self. And, and so we can kind of like get away with stuff, right? Christianity, the Bible, Jesus doesn't let us do that. It doesn't let us compartmentalize or separate our bodies from our soul. It brings it all together. Jesus, uh, He teaches that, that we have to do the heart work first foster a healthy soul, and then all these outer things follow. So he cares about the purity of your soul. If we don't hate, then we won't murder. If we love from our heart, then we'll love with our heads and our hands and with our words, right? Jesus cares about the purity and the health of your soul. He's saying to keep your souls pure and blessing will follow. People who live for themselves and pursue their fleshly desires, he's saying they don't know God. Those who don't do that heart work they don't get to see God and walk with Him and commune with Him. And that's important because God is actually the good news. Like when you go to the end and you read about where we're going, what's so great about that place is that God dwells there. That's the great hope of heaven, is Jesus is there. He's the good news. And so that's the good news of this passage, is if you'll do the heart work, if you'll evaluate your motivations and your thoughts and your feelings, you're going to be rewarded with God, getting to see Him and know Him and walk with Him. Are you pure in heart? Are you a spiritual person? Are you faithful to His Word and to His ways? Number seven is happy 
are the reconcilers because they will gain godliness. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Listen, some have tried to make a foreign policy out of this. But this isn't how our world works, right? Listen, as Christians and as people, we, we should work for peace. But ultimately, like all the other Beatitudes, this is talking about our relationship with God and interpersonal relationships. So the, the opposite of peace is discord. And the Old Testament has this wonderful word for peace and harmony. The Hebrew term is shalom. It's, it's the theme of the Psalms. But, but it's this place where uh, everything is functioning as it should. And so reconciliation is how you get to shalom. So when relationships are fractured, peacemakers are needed. Sh- shalom uh, and peace, they, they need to be restored. So Jesus is saying that those who, who step in, those who help bring reconciliation, those who help bring shalom, they're going to experience happiness. So divisive, unforgiving, argumentative people... They are not happy people, but blessed are those who step into those difficult situations and bring about reconciliation. In fact, people who work for peace, they're the happiest people, right? And think about it, like think arbitrator. Like, like it's kind of easy if you have two people fighting and then you kind of come in objectively and you kind of fix it all. Like that's a lot easier than when two people are fighting and you're one of the people fighting, right? Like he's saying, listen, even when you're in that moment, You need to be a peacemaker in that moment. You need to fight for the relationship more than winning the argument. And what he says here is people who do that, they're going to be called sons of God. They're going to be God-like. People are going to watch you do that and say, goodness, there's something that's very God-like in that moment. They're displaying God's character. They're displaying spiritual maturity and godliness. Are you a peacemaker? Let me ask it this way. This is convicting to me. Are you better in a reconciliation or are you better in a fight? Do you have a trail of broken relationships or do you have a trail of, of these healthy, happy relationships? Well, number eight, the last one. Happy are the vilified because they will gain the kingdom of God. Verses 10 to 12 say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophet who were, who were before you. The outline of this sermon is sort of a mess. And in fact, on your sermon notes, I just left the whole thing blank. What I was trying to do here is just give some different words, you know, to, to maybe think about this a little bit differently in order to apply it. This is one of these famous passages of Scripture. Sometimes we just kind of run through it. We rush past it. We don't really think about what all this means. I, I've tried to add some different words to it, okay? But you can't really add better words than Jesus' words, right? And see, what I, I've added a, a different word here for persecution. Because I, I think we're in a moment where, you know, I, I don't know that we're persecuted today, Okay. I think a better word for our context of where we are is we're vilified, okay? Now, I think we need to be fair, and, and I think maybe we need to bring down the temperature and say, I don't know that we're persecuted, okay? I mean, if you know church history and lions and burning at the stake and all these things, we're not persecuted, okay? But maybe we need to bring up the fire a bit and, and be honest that, listen, if, if you're a Christian today, a Christian young person, you are going to be vilified for your faith. People, people are, are not going to like you because of your faith. So if you think that, listen, if I follow Christ, everything's going to be hunky-dory, everybody's going to love me for it, 
Friend, you're not reading the Scriptures. You're not, you're not listening to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that if you faithfully follow Him, just like they vilified and persecuted Him, they're going to do the same for you. Now, now there's a debate about these passages. Do you, should we separate you know, 10 away from 11 and 12? Do they fit together? How do they fit together? And, and, and I think actually uh, 11 and 12 kind of are a transition passage into the, to the rest of the sermon. So we'll, we'll circle back to these next week. But all three of these verses are about the same topic. They're about persecution and vilification. And Jesus is very, very clear here that if He was vilified, you're going to be vilified as well. You're not going to get out of this world without being vilified, okay? They did it to Jesus. They're going to do it to you. And frankly, if you look at the history of the church, that's been kind of the common thing for Christians throughout history. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us. But there is something that we gain here, right? Like, Notice that, that we gain something better than fortune and fame. Like, If you're following Christ, you're actually probably walking away from money at certain points. You're probably walking away from advancement at certain points. You're going to maybe be limited in some way. But whatever you give up, He's saying that there is something so much better. You're going to gain the kingdom of God. Now, as you look at at verse 10, and then you look up to verse 3, he kind of bookends this thing with the kingdom of God. So, so before, he talked about that, listen, the humble ones, they gain the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But now here at the end, he's saying the persecuted ones, they're also going to gain the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here is those who are humble as well as courageous, they're going to get taste of abundant life here, and they're going to drink fully of the kingdom of God in the hereafter. Humility and courage. And then friends, quietly rejoice when you're vilified. When that, when that comes to your life, He's telling you to rejoice. Quietly rejoice. Because you know that you're gaining something better than what this world has to offer. You're gaining joy here and joy for eternity. Are you happy? Jesus taught that, that blessing or happiness it's found in living this countercultural, paradoxical life where you're living for the kingdom that is to come, not just for the kingdom here. And listen, we all know how this world works, but Jesus is calling you to live for the next world. Again, we know how this world works. The world believes that the rich will gain the whole world. The world believes that the overly confident will never need anything. The world believes that the strongest will get the most. The world believes that if you chase every fleshly desire you have, then all those desires will be satisfied. All those uh, urges will be satisfied. The world believes that putting up protective relational walls, that's how you're going to find fulfillment if nobody ever hurts me. The, the world believes that, listen, if you will just twist God and put Him in the box, if you'll create Him in your image and make Him fit what you think is right and what you think is good, then you'll find happiness. The world believes that those who win wars will gain glory. Have you lived that way? Has it made you happy if you've lived that way? Jesus is calling you to live not according to this world, but for the world that is to come. And you might be saying, okay, I see the wisdom of Jesus' teaching, but how do we do it? Well, friend, now we're at the resurrection. Now we're at the good news. Think about that first Easter weekend. You see, the world 
all around Jesus did what the world does, right? There should, there should be no surprise about that Friday. You see, the Romans wanted to hold on to the power. The Sadducees wanted to hold on to their riches. The, the Pharisees, they wanted to hold on to their religious prestige. The mobs, they wanted to satisfy their fleshly desires for blood and vengeance. The sinner on the cross, he was hurt over and over again and he wanted to mock Jesus. The, the, the criminal wanted to uh, manipulate Jesus in order to get what he wanted. The devil himself thought that he had won. They did what the world does. They killed God. But then Sunday came. Amen? That's where we're at the resurrection. You see, the man who taught the Beatitudes and lived according to the Beatitudes, he died for sin and he defeated death. That's how we do it. We do it through him. We do it through his life. Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 38, that he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Friends, if you want to find happiness, if you want to find happiness, you're to turn from this dead world and its deadly ways and you're to believe in Jesus and his resurrection that's how you find happiness and if you want to continue to find happiness if you want to live this out and what he's saying here is that you're to live through the resurrection through the power of the resurrection listen none of us can do those eight things none of us can fully live that out but he's saying this is where happiness is found but He's giving us the good news, the hope that we can do it through Him. You see, He died so that you might live here and in the hereafter. Charles, that missionary that we began with, he gave up fame and he gave up fortune in order to follow hard after Jesus. To live for His coming kingdom. And he found happiness. He found a blessed life. Here's what he wrote at the end of his life. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life to soon be, be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, the Satan, when Satan would victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in daily life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn from the world. Now let me turn, living for Thee and Thee alone. Bring Thee pleasure on Thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then he closed with only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say Thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, Jesus taught that the happy life is to live this paradoxical, counter-cultural life according to the kingdom that is to come. This world is not your home. And when the world teaches you something different, and when your flesh yearns for something different, believe that true happiness, robust happiness, it's found 
uh, it's found in following him. Believe in the resurrection to find happiness in heaven. And then keep believing in the resurrection to find happiness here. Live for the kingdom. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for just the moment to circle up together, to be reminded of these glorious truths of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you have just blessed us with not only this call on how to live and how to find happiness in this world, but you've also empowered us to do it. The resurrection is all about atonement for sin, defeat over sin and death, but it's all then about living this new resurrected life here. May we be a, a blessed people, a happy people, a people who live as true followers of Christ, different from the rest of the world, beautifully distinct, and may we do it in your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray.